that all the things that come our way pass first through his good and loving hand. And that is the message we are hearing in the book of Job. That is a true story of so many things that come at us that are so hard. And yet God is faithful and he is good. And, and we introduced the series of Job a couple weeks ago and it's been so good, hasn't it? And uh, Dr. Kirby from the University of Utah is going to come and speak to us this morning. I told you we'd have four different speakers uh, during this series, and this is Mike Kirby, and he's a dear friend, and he loves the Lord, and uh, he has figured out how to live as a Christian in a university campus. Now, that's a deal, isn't it? And uh, I'm so excited to hear from him this morning. So, Dr. Kirby, thank you for coming and sharing God's Word, and uh, we're excited to have you preach for us this morning. I'm going to pray for you. Can I do that before I... Yeah. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you give us the guidance that we need in this life. Thank you for how you call us to speak and preach. And I thank you for, for Mike. I thank you for his love for you. I thank you for his family. I thank you that uh, he longs to teach your word and to do it well. So I ask your blessing upon him. Fill him with your spirit. Use him and speak through him this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to everyone, and those of you who are joining online. It's a little, for me, it's quite an opportunity to get to preach, a little different than what I normally do, which is teaching. Um, so maybe I'll start off with what I hope you will all get out of this message, because as a university professor, I'm used to the following question. It's the most asked question of me. Will that be on the exam? <laughs> um, there isn't an exam after this, however... What I've learned is it is good to start with the end in mind. That is to tell you what I hope you will get out of this, what you will get out of Job 3 through 37, and that is I hope you will think about God differently and more expansively, and that in light of that, you will trust God. So if there were a quiz, that would be the answers. The two answers would be what should happen? You should think about God differently and more expansively, and you should trust God. All right, so a little bit of review. We are in week three of Job. Uh, we went through chapters one and two, uh, and that was uh, two weeks ago. Jim taught the introduction. Uh, Jared taught last week on three through 37 on what is listed, uh, I think, as retribution theology. That's in quotes because if you go look up retribution theology, that is not an area of theology like systematic theology and biblical theology. Um, we are in week three. You might think, how could you get four weeks out of Job? I did a little bit of research. It ends up that uh, there's at least two people referenced in the literature. One, George Hudsonson was able to get 316 sermons out of Job. Okay. What's even more impressive, Joseph Carroll, uh, circa 1700s, taught on Job for 23 years. Okay, so for this group over here, can you imagine that you are in elementary school, you're hearing Job, you go off to college, you come back, and he's still on Job. I, okay, we only have four weeks, and I'm in week three, and Kevin's going to wrap it up next week. Jared taught last week on retribution theology. One thing I do want to point out, and, and he and I were talking about this uh, this week, I think it's important uh, to kind of recap, because one of the things you always get after a sermon, I know this will happen after I teach today, and that is there will be the frequently asked questions. Um, one of them from last week would be, 
uh, as Jared was teaching, he mentioned that in our society, and I think it's a general principle, we get that bad things or doing, doing bad will end up with bad. So bad things end up with bad things. And that good ends up with good. Right? And so what Jared challenged us with is that Job, in the book of Job, you highlight that sometimes bad things happen to good people and sometimes good things happen to bad people. Now, if you think of this as a two-by-two two system, you basically say, if all of those are true, then what you're telling me is things happen to people. That is, okay, so how do we relate these? So, so that's one of the frequently asked questions, and I think one of them that comes from parents, because as parents, you often ask yourself, okay, so how do I relay that to my kids? You know, how do I teach this as a principle? And I think the thing you don't want to miss, and, and it, was, it was part of what Jared said, so I'm just reiterating something that was already there, and that is, uh, in the Bible, and in particular in wisdom literature, we see God often providing us statements that are normative. That is, he's giving us patterns of, if you do this, this will often follow. So, for instance, the book of Proverbs is filled with these, and they help us understand God's pattern of living. Job, and what was taught last week, is challenging us that those were not propositional. So you are not to go to God saying, I did this, therefore, this is true. They're meant to be, this is the way of aligning with God, and these things often happen. And so if you think about it, the reason why they're not propositional is the fact that if they were propositional, then in some sense we're in control and we don't need God. And so the book of Job was helping remind us that although the book of Proverbs helps give us statements concerning truths that align with God's patterns, Right? His, his friends were wrestling with that, and, and, and Jared taught on that last week. So, for those of you who are parents and were wondering, you know, how do you glean something out of that, it is still appropriate to teach uh, the book of Proverbs to your kids, and that good things happen to good people, and that there are consequences to bad actions. That's fully consistent with Job. Um, but that they shouldn't treat life in this kind of propositional way. Right? Okay. So that's a recap from last week. We're in 3 through 37. We have three friends. So I'll have a little commercial now. So the three friends, um, if, I think the tendency in, in, in uh, reading Job, um, especially after last week, is to uh, look poorly on the three friends. I think Jared said this at the beginning. Uh, we must at least commend them as friends with being with Job. Right? So they were three friends with Job. That gives me my small commercial. Uh, it was already mentioned before. I would highly encourage you to go to Discipleship Hour and Life Groups. I think both of them are important because you will be with other like-minded Christians that can help encourage you. In my particular case, the shout out to the young professionals, there's several of them here. That's the class that Willie and I are teaching. Um, but I would encourage you to participate in the Discipleship Hour. All right, so we're now to what we're gonna talk about today, which is God's sovereignty. So this is gonna be in three parts. I wanna talk about God's sovereignty and providence. I wanna talk about the right and wrong ways to respond to that. Um, and then I want to talk about the need for a mediator. So last week, um, you know, as we're transitioning, I think uh, one of the challenges for me in, in going over this uh, text is that there's a, there's a principal point to chapters 3 through 37. And that principal point is the one that was taught last week. So the principal point is to help us understand as we're living the Christian life, and as we are following, for instance, the book of Proverbs, how we wrestle through when things happen to us, and they don't align with those kind of normative statements. If I were to do this, then this should follow. 
but yet this happened. So that was the main point of last week. So now, with the sovereignty of God, we're going to take a different lens at the same chapter. And the, thing you, the chapters, and the thing you have to appreciate in these is, um, unlike in other places in the Bible, the topic we're going to discuss today is not the principal point, nor is it outlined directly in the text. So by that meaning, the author is not saying, I'm going to talk about sovereignty and then provide an argument. What we're going to see in 3 through 37, like in many kind of narrative stories, so remember this is from the genre that's presenting us also a story, is that you can pick up from stories patterns that are assumed by those that are in the text. So as we listen to the characters, in this case it will be Job and his three friends, as we listen to them, we will get a sense of their worldview, their view of God. In some cases, it's a right worldview. In some cases, it's not quite a right worldview. But we will pick up on their worldview, and that worldview is concerning God's sovereignty. So just to, for the, as a heads up, if you go searching for sovereignty and providence, you're not going to find a heading in your Bible uh, in the section related to Job concerning sovereignty and providence. providence. You're going to see, though, as you read through it with this particular lens. So the lens is to ask yourself, what is their view of God? What we're going to be able to glean out of that is their view of sovereignty and providence of God. Okay, so let's start with some definitions so that we have kind of a common understanding. What is sovereignty? What, are, what is providence? So I'll give you two. A.A. A. Hodge uh, talks about sovereignty in the following way. He says God's sovereignty um, is his absolute right to govern and dispose of all his creatures according to his good pleasure. A second definition, which I think is also consistent, God's faithful and effective care and guidance of everything which he has made towards the, uh, which he has made towards the end which he has chosen. Okay, so this gives us kind of a context. When we talk about sovereignty, we're talking about, uh, we're just from the root of the word, in this case, sovereignty, idea of sovereign, sovereign, idea of ruler. The idea of God's sovereignty is, is gaining a perspective on God's rulership over something. And in this case, it is his rulership over the world, his kingdom, and what we're going to see is our lives. And so I think uh, as we were talking about last week, and I'll quote theologian, uh, theologian Paul House, I think one of the things we're going to see in this is that there is a tendency in the modern world to drift away from a view of God as being sovereign, and that in what, what it leads to is an incomplete theology, so now I'll quote, uh, Paul House says, incomplete theology has, um, in the case of 3 through 37, it has placed God's reputation at risk. So without an appreciation of the fact that, in this case, Yahweh allows suffering as a means of showing God is worth serving under all conditions, the friends, in this case the three friends, they decide that a seemingly unrighteous man is actually a terrible sinner. So the thing we're going to combat in this section is an incomplete theology or an incorrect view of God. So now back to what's the point. Remember the two things that I want you to get out of today. I want you to have a different or a more expansive view of God. So today the goal is to challenge that. And, and you may have, you have a view of God, whether you believe it or not. Um, what we want to do is we want to use, God, we want to use 
Job's dialogue with his friends to help expand that. Okay, so let's look at some passages. Um, as was mentioned, with all three friends, and this is, of course, one of the challenges in reading this literature in general, and that is the friends are not absolutely wrong. So as we're going through these passages, it's not that the way the dialogue works is Job says something, and then a friend says something, and you can say, okay, if the friend is speaking, therefore it is wrong. Actually, that's not true in many of these cases. The friends are providing, in many cases, biblical wisdom. It's often incomplete. So in, in the cases I'm going to talk about now, I'm going to, I'm going to highlight cases where the friends get it right. Let's look at uh, Job 5. 8 through 16. So for some of these, you'll notice that I give uh, longer passages, longer number of verses. I'm not necessarily going to read all of those, but I think in this case, this is Eliphaz speaking. He says, as for me, I would seek God, and to God I would commit my cause, who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends water on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with the darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as if it were night. And he saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty, so the poor have hope and the injustice shuts her mouth. So as I said before, in a, in a case like this, it is not that Eliphaz is saying, I'm going to tell you something about God, but rather, as Eliphaz as a friend is relating his idea of God, we see that he is, Eliphaz, in the way he is presenting God, is presenting him as sovereign. He rules, he rules, right, as we see here at the beginning, uh, to God I would commit my cause who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Right? So implicit in the statement, without him explicitly saying, I'm going to tell you something about God, Job is telling us something about God. Job similarly does this in Job 9. Job 9, 5 through 10. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeds? He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretches out the heaven and tramples the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond search and marvelous things beyond number. So again, just by listening to Job and his friends, in many of these cases, we get a perspective, we get their perspective on God, and it helps us understand, and I think um, reorient ourselves to a view of God that is some, sometimes broader, and this is something we're going to talk about in the second section, sometimes broader than we often in our modern world um, give him right to. And I think one of the challenges we're going to deal with, and it's, I think it's a modern challenge, is you might look at this and listen to what I just read, and you might say, oh, that's nice, that's, that's very poetic. You said we should pay attention to genre, and so therefore, he doesn't really mean um, that he removes mountains, for instance. He makes that, that phrase is used. 
And I think if we do that in this case, and, and not to say that he's not using poetic language necessarily, depending on the place um, within scripture, but I think we often have the tendency in our modern world to dismiss this and to make God more narrow uh, than God really is. So we read this and try to label it as, say, poetic, and miss the fact that it presents a view of God that is expansive. Right, so don't get hung up on the particulars of this as, as poetry and dialogue and a, a play, I think, as, as um, Jared mentioned. But rather, listen to the words appreciating their view of God. Their, their view of God is to rightly place him as the creator of all things. We see this again. Let's look at uh, Zophar. This is in Job 11. So this is another of the friends. He says, uh, can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? It is higher than the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So here I've given three. These are just three references. You can find many more. And this will be one I think that, that Kevin will have the opportunity to preach on next week. Because in this case we have Job and the friends. We don't have God speaking. We don't have Job's, uh, uh, God speaking until 39. That's where it starts off with the very impressive where were you um, statement. So you know, for those of you who like when the music, like uh, in, in uh, uh, theatrical events, when the music changes, the music changes in 39. That's the transition, the where were you. But even in these verses we get the friends acknowledging the vastness of God. And we see this in the New Testament. There's at least two places that I want to highlight. Colossians uh, 1, 16 through 17. So this is not just the Old Testament. Um, and, and why that's important to appreciate is that this continues into the New Testament. Uh, Colossians says it, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's a pretty expansive God. Hebrews reiterates this. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his power. Okay, so this gives you some sense of, prov of, of sovereignty. I now want to switch to providence. Now I will point out, not everybody agrees with this partition. Um, and uh, I'm using it based on John Piper. Uh, he likes to distinguish them. Um, I think both terms, neither term is found as a label for which you could say uh, providence and sovereignty, meaning if you go search for them. So I think uh, in fairness to John Piper, um, he's using them to help kind of tease out two important points. Uh, in a lot of the writings, you will see them lumped together. And I have nothing wrong with lumping them together in the sense that often when you will hear a, a, a minister mention sovereignty, they will be implicitly using both. But I want to tease them out to distinguish um, the way, in the way that Piper does. Sovereignty denotes uh, the ability of the ruler to rule over all things. So it is coming from the root, sovereign, so, and the principle, which is that there's a kingdom and somebody who can lead over something. It talks about the rights and privileges of that person, if we, if we personalize it, person, to rule over something. It, and, and Piper would say, because of that distinction, it doesn't necessarily talk about the intent of the person in the rule. Now, to give fairness kind of the point to those that would say, well, with God, when we say God's sovereignty, we're kind of 
meaning providence. Um, we know of his style of ruling based on his character. So yes, sovereignty is consistent. It is consistent to say that when we say um, sovereignty, it is connected with the term providence. In this case, John Piper, again, to tease these out, Piper says the providence of God is the purposeful sovereignty by which he, God, will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe. God's providence carries his plan into action, guides all things towards his ultimate goal, and leads to, the, to a final consummation. So Piper, again, trying to tease this out, is saying sovereignty says God can do all things, and that the things that he wants to do, consistent with his character, which are consistent with his character, are purposeful. So we have a purposeful God, hence Piper says he has purposeful sovereignty. He not only can rule over all things um, and can exercise that rule, but that there's a purpose in his rule. Okay, so let's look at Job, again, to see where this pops up and, and why I think Piper wants to tease that out. Uh, Job 10, 8 through 13. Your hands fashioned and made me, and now you have destroyed me altogether. Remember that you have made me like clay, and you will return me to dust. Did you not pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinew. You have granted me life and steadfast love, and your care has, my, has preserved my spirit. Yet these things you hid in your heart. I know that this was your purpose. So again, like we said with sovereignty, within the reading of Job, as we're reading through 3 through 7, you see their worldview so we see their perspective on God. And in this case, Job specifically highlights, as he's lamenting things going on with him, right? so, so, I mean, he's using, within his context, uh, a way of expressing how frustrated he is. Did you pour me out like milk and curdle me like cheese? I don't think any of us would say that now, but, but you get his point. Yet, in this passage, he says, I know that this was your purpose. Providence being purposeful, Sovereignty. Job 16, 11 through 13, we see this again. Uh, God gives me, that's what it starts off with in verse 11, God gives me to the ungodly and cast me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me to pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surrounded me. Beautiful poetic language, you know, in, in the way that Job is describing it. Um, he would have definitely got an A in an English composition course. Um, he slashes open my kidneys <laughs> and does not despair. He pours, pours out my gall on the ground. Or Job 19, I think we'll jump into the middle of this one. I don't have the verse 19, uh, 5 through 13. But you see, uh, again, in the kind of the middle of that passage, he says, um, he has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. So we hear over and over in, jo in, in this case, Job speaking in all three cases. Um, Job, not inconsistently what, with what we heard before, Job is not speaking of God in just his sovereignty and as a ruling entity broadly over the world. He's now personalized it in terms of his interaction with God. We had God's purpose um, in that previous section. 
We have he, he in, in Job 16, God gives me up. So specifically talking about his interaction with God, what's happening to him and his view on, that, on, on how God is interacting with him. In Job 19, um, he is walled up my way so that I cannot pass. He has set darkness upon my paths. So we have not only Job speaking about what God does broadly, but specifically Job talking about what God's doing with him. And I think that's important, and we're going to see this in a moment. That's important because often we have a tendency about talking about God, and our way of phrasing things about God is as if he's there, like there or way over there. And we see Job is talking not only in those earlier passages about the broad sense of God, qualities, properties of God, characters of God, um, right, and rightful statements about God, but also a very personal God. Okay, so there's a little excursus here on trials, and this is kind of fun because um, this is, excursus is connected with, um, it's not one of the friends. So I'll run through this quickly. There's three points. Um, why this is important is um, people debate about this. This is, it's kind of like in a play, you've got the three friends, you've got the dialogues, it's going back and forth, and all of a sudden, there's this last character that shows up, and this last character uh, they believe to be young. So the three friends, you kind of guess as being, you know, based on um, kind of context. Imagine um, it's like boomers and Gen X friends all talking with Job, and all of a sudden, the millennial or Gen Z person says, hey, I got an idea. And why, you know, I'd say, okay, why would I say that? It's because the friend, if you, if you read that section, um, uh, Elihu comes in basically saying, okay, now that you guys have, now that you um, long-winded people have spoken for a long time, I want to tell you something. I figured it out. Um, and, and this person, kind of, uh, Elihu, brings out three things. He says that, uh, that are important to highlight. The first one is that trials are not a reason to question God's character. We see this in Job 34. Elihu says, Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. So we see Elihu pointing out, I think rightly, something that's important about God, that trials are not a reason to question God's character. Number two, trials teach us something about who we are. Elihu rightly points out, Job 37, 15, God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ears to adversity. I think one of the most, one of the most quoted things by C.S. Lewis, he says this in The Problem of Pain, he said, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks to us, in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I think the third point was that trials teach us something about God, about who he is. Uh, I'll reference Hebrews uh, 12, 5 through 7. That's the New Testament verse, verses that talk about this. Um, in Hebrews it says, My son, do not disregard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary uh, when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We see this also in Elihu's response, 37. He loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter, the, scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all, that the, all the commands um, all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. 
whether for correction or for his, um, see, or for his hand or for his love, he causes it to happen. So, in this sense, Elihu had it right. I think many theologians believe it. Believe, um, you know, it's a case where Elihu had it right in parts, but may not in everything. Um, I think as a as a side note for uh, younger people, there is a lesson here. Um, the lesson is important, I think, in Elihu. So I'm going to speak to this group. This is mainly college, career. Um, I think the positive from this, from Elihu, is that you often have not gone through everything, which means you have fresh eyes, and fresh eyes are good. Fresh eyes are the ones that basically say, why are we doing this the way we do it? And sometimes the answer by people like me is, well, because we've always done it that way and we never reevaluated it. So, Elihu, is, there is a value to the Elihu character because the Elihu character brings things with fresh eyes and is able to kind of refresh the conversation. You should not lose that. Now, the balance of that is, don't be as cocky as Elihu. <laughs> right? So the fact is, um, this group, so the, I'll, I'll say the older group, um, wisdom, experience, and some of the things you're, you're, you're uh, feeling, expressing now, um, whether that seems surprising or gross, yes, they experienced it all themselves too. They had those same feelings. So there's a value to the fresh eyes, um, but do it with humility, not hubris. Okay, so that was the excur uh, excursion. So let's get to point number two, and I think this kind of connects with sovereignty and providence. Um, so what's the wrong reproach? What's the wrong response to this? And unfortunately, the wrong response to sovereignty and providence is what we see in our world today, and that is in the Enlightenment, in the period of the Enlightenment, we have uh, a period of great success from the perspective of people, I think, like myself in my occupation. That is, science is growing there's an interest in science and correspondingly an interest in technology um, and it starts revolutions. The downside in that is that we had a tendency um, to look at God differently, differently than we saw in Job and sometimes, unfortunately, inappropriately. So with the deists, what we got out of deism was uh, that they were very interested in reason instead of revelation and so therefore, uh, they elevated reason over revelation. Um, that made them more concerned with uh, what now I think has been termed a moralistic kind of therapeutic view of God. Now you might say, well, that's not the way I view God. But the, I think the challenge for us is that there is a kind of a consequence of now 300 years of the kind of cultural language around God that's very deistic. And that is that we, we often think of God as being way out there. So I'm going to quote from Dallas Willard uh, in his book, The Grand Conspiracy. And he points out that there's kind of two tendencies by us um, as a consequence of uh, this time of deism. He said, the first one is, uh, the damage done to our practical faith in Christ and in his government at hand by uh, confusion, by confusing heaven with a place so this is the, the downside of the deist approach. Um, by confusing heaven with a place that is distant or in outer space, or even beyond space, is incalculable. Of course, God is there too, but instead of heaven and God also being always present with us, uh, as Jesus shows him to be, we in invariably take him to be located far, far away. So it's like the beginning of, uh, what is it, Star Wars. Right? 
So one of the downsides of our language, of our cultural language, is to treat God as if he were way out there. And you might say, well, I don't do that. Dallas Willard would say, well, there is another downside. He says the other downside is the ill-advised attempt to make God near by confining him to the human heart. It robs the idea of God's direct involvement in human life um, in any sense. Ironically, it has much the same effect as putting God in outer space or beyond. It gives us a pretty metaphor but leaves us vainly grasping for reality. So the downside of a deist approach, whether we realize it or not, and, and why I'm bringing this up is rereading Job and rereading the three friends' responses helps recalibrate us about God. God is not just out there and not just in here. He is everywhere. He is sovereign. He is provident. And our view of God should not be limited to heaven, nor limited to only that he is in my heart. And so we have to, again, recalibrate, think of God a little differently. So what's the right response? This gets us to, um, again, what we see, uh, and this was brought up last week. What's the, if you remember, uh, Pastor Jared mentions, what's the critical question? The critical question was Job uh, 28.12. But where shall wisdom come, and where's the place of understanding? Right, that's a key question for Job. The answer is in 28.28. 28, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, to turn away from evil is understanding. So what's the right response? The right response to God is not just to place him far out and not just to place him in our hearts, but to appreciate him for who he is, both sovereign and provident, and to elicit the fear of the Lord. We've seen this over and over. I mean, certainly uh, in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In our study of Ecclesiastes, this was in 12.13, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter, fear God and keep his commandments. Psalms uh, 111.10, fear the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I found this one this week, Psalms 25, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Friendship with God. So John Bevere, in his book, Fear of the Lord, he says, all true worship is anchored in a reverence for his presence. So the wrong response is a deist response, and that is to try to put God way out there or only isolate him into our hearts to miss this. The right response is fear of the Lord. That is to appropriately view God as sovereign and to appreciate his, pers his purposeful sovereignty, that is his providence. That elicits the fear of the Lord, a reverence for him. But even Job acknowledged this. This is point number three. Um, and that is that there's a natural challenge there. And that is God is much bigger than us. Right? So the right response of the fear of the Lord is it reminds us of how great our God is. And so what's Job's, if you call it a lament or frustration, his comment, I think there's eight speeches by Job, three of which all mention this, and that is, Job needed a mediator. He wanted somebody in between. He realized how great God is and how small he was. Job 9, 20, uh, 32 through 33. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us. Who might lay his hand on both of us? Job again in 16, chapter 16, 18 through 22. O earth... Cover not my blood, 
and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies uh, for me is on high. My friends scorn me, my eye pours out tears to God, that he should argue the case of a man with God, as a son of man does, not, does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I will not return. And then Job 19, 23 through 27, I'll just read the verse, uh, the section in the middle. Uh, this one is one that Jared mentioned last week. For I know that my Redeemer lives. At the last, he will stand upon the earth. So Job specifically expresses the need for, the desire for, somebody in between. And I think that somebody in between is because when you get a full grasp of God and how small we are, I think it's very natural for us to effectively, it, I think the, 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 uh, in, the, in the flesh, the analogy would be, it's kind of like you're going before somebody, you want, you want your buddy with you. You want somebody alongside of you. You want a wingman. And I think Job expresses this in the Old Testament, that he wants, he desires, once he has a full perspective of how grand God is, he wants somebody to be with him. He wants a partner. The wonderful thing is, in Christ, we have this in the New Testament. First, First Timothy 2.5, 2, I think this is you know, one of those verses that explicitly helps uh, address this. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. So we see that, that Job's request in the Old Testament was met in Jesus. Hebrews 8.6 says it. Um, as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the, old, than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on a better promise. Jesus fulfills exactly what Job requested. I'll quote, uh, this is George MacDonald. He was a Victorian era uh, minister he said the following about Jesus as our mediator. The Son of God suffered unto death, not that men might not suffer, but that their suffering might be like his. So we see in Christ that the request by Job, the desire by Job for somebody to stand with him, that that has been met in Christ. Okay, so we're coming to the, kind of the end. So how are we to respond? We have a new perspective on God. He is sovereign and he is purposeful. We have the wrong response. The wrong response is to put him way out there or to isolate him way in here and to keep that, keep that very narrow. The right response is an appropriate fear of the Lord and appreciating that, that fear of the Lord, um, as we saw in Psalms 25, connects us with God in friendship, but that due to God's awesomeness, a natural response by us is to want a mediator, and we have that in Jesus Christ. So I think we can look to Psalms 46. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way through the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble and swell. 
Job 13, 15 says, Though you slay me, I will hope in him. Job 19, we just read this one, 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, and I, and not another, how my, yearn, how my heart yearns within me. So I think as we're coming to a close, the right response is to see God differently and to put our trust, our hope, in God. And so as we're ending, I'm, I'm going to tell a story so the band can come forward. I want to tell a personal story. Like with all personal stories, this is not to, meant to be prescriptive. What I'm going to describe um, is not to say this will always happen to you, but I want to share something that's happened to me and how I'm reassured in this. I think there's going to be a time of prayer, so for those of you, um, as the music's playing, uh, you want to come forward, there's going to be um, either uh, the prayer team or pastors um, that can be here to pray with you. So for those of you who don't know me, in 2009, um, I found out I had cancer. We had just come back from England. Uh, I was told that I needed a bone marrow transplant. Uh, my first bone marrow, tra bone marrow transplant happened in 2009. My second one happened in 2010. It's what's called a tandem transplant. You do a transplant back-to-back. -back. So back-to-back -back means in fewer than six months. So when people ask, what's the worst thing? Is there, any, is there any worse thing than a bone marrow transplant? The answer is two of them. Um, and I say that, you know, it sounds joking. I say that because... This story is connected with the second one. Um, and the reason why the second one is more difficult than the first one is that in the first one, uh, you kind of have this gung-ho, I can do it. Um, you know, I can make it through. People are praying for me. The second one, you've been through it. And so, you know, your, your fight or flight response is, is worried about this. Uh, you know, you, you, have a, you have a sense of everything that's going to go on, right? You can, in your mind, detail everything. And yet, it's going to happen again. In this particular case, uh, Allison had to drop me off at the hospital, um, so she, she couldn't even stay with me to walk me up uh, into check-in and up to my room uh, because of the circumstances of our family. So she dropped me off, and I'm wrestling, you know, wrestling with God, and by wrestling meaning I'm praying about it, I'm frustrated, I'm fearful, I'm angry, all those emotions, everything you see in Job, I had them all um, in the car ride. So get out of the car, walk into the hospital. Uh, go into the reception. The person uh, asks you your name, date of birth, like the name you who've been to the hospital, two things. Ask me, is anybody with me? Of course, you know, that's the, the gut punch again. The answer is nope, nobody else with me. I'm checking myself in. It, you know, it's one of those faces, like, really? Um, but continues. Check in continues. And again, all these emotions are going through. My phone rings. Pick up the phone. Answer friend of mine at church. And he says, where are you at? And I said, well, I, he said, it's ironic you asked me. I said, I happen to be at the university hospital and I'm in checking. I'm checking myself in because I've got to start chemotherapy this afternoon. He says, oh. Uh, he goes, I was praying for you. He said, I felt I should call you. I'll be right down. Two minutes later, he's there. He stayed with me from check-in all the day, went upstairs with me, 
and he didn't leave until until the end, until everything everything was through, and I was hooked up. Um, and the day had progressed, and Allison was able to come. And everything, you know, so he spent the entire day with me, which at some level you say praise God, and I agree. So I want to I want to in my life help you understand the difference between you know, providence and sovereignty. So I think sovereignty would be on the car ride is the prayer of God, you can heal me, and I knew that, and God chose not to. So sovereignty was acknowledging that God could have healed me and chose not to. Sovereignty is also acknowledging that as I'm frustrated and sitting there in the reception, I want somebody with me. Somebody called, which was exciting. God's providence was the fact that I was already in the hospital. When I arrived at the reception, That will close. I'd like you to think about that story. And for those of you who are wrestling with God now, my God. Knows.